I want to express my Akarsa Tov to the girls of the Torah Academy of Boston for giving me the opportunity to create and share this story with them live. And I'm very thankful to Mrs. Moskowitz and to Mrs. Sternfeld and all of the other Moros that were involved in enabling me to share this story. It is not a Sammy story. It's a story that was created with a beautiful message. And I think that boy or girl will like this unique story. Let me know what you really think. And here it is. The girls got off the bus at Camp Ahava. They were so excited. Camp. Wow. Sleepaway camp. Awesome. The girls ran to the big field where the where everyone gathered in order to be placed in order to be placed in their bunks. And there were head counselors and counselors and managers and whoever other kinds of staffers over there organizing the girls, getting their luggage, sending them to which bunk house, sending them to which bunk. It was a kind of a little bit like a balagan. But finally, after a little while, everything was settled and camp began. Girl Girls were having an amazing time. They were all excited as they played kickball and tennis and soccer. And they were all excited to do the art project that involved sewing and cutting and embroidering. They were all so excited when they went to their groups in which they learned and they chanted and they sang songs. The enthusiasm of every single camper was oozing out of their pores. Every camper was involved and engaged. Well, actually, except one. Rivka was one camper who didn't seem to be so engaged. Now, it's true, Rivka was a little bit different than some of the other girls. Rivka walked with a funny gait, kind of with a little limp. And Rivka's clothing were kind of a little misshapen and twisted and wrinkled. And Rivka's hair looked like it had been brushed when she was born and not much after that. And the most significant thing was Rivka's face. She seemed to have a perpetual frown, a scowl, a frustrated, upset look on her face that did not go away. And the girls kind of didn't seek her out to include her. And so when they were playing a game of soccer and the counselor said, um, someone's missing, Someone's missing. Oh, where's Rivka? All the girls answered in unison. Who? Rivka. Oh, Rivka. And they said, we don't know. When Rivka finally showed up at the game and had to be picked into a team, each person fought. Each team fought. Which team should have her? Because neither team wanted her on their team. Even the artwork even the woodwork, when they did the things, when they did the, when they did these activities, 
even when they did the activities of art or woodworking, Rifko would come and she would try to do some of the job of painting, staining, or sewing. And she would mess up. And almost any other camper who messed up, who made a mistake, would find somebody there and be assisted to correct the error. But Rifka, it seemed like nobody noticed and nobody corrected her. Now, what started off as simply a little ignoring and the girls would go back to their bunks and the girls would go back to their bunks and they would schmooze at night for a couple of hours, sometimes way past curfew and lights out. And they would talk about all things under sun. They would talk about all things under the sun. And Rifka would try once in a while to add to the conversation. But even when she talked, it seemed like nobody listened. And she usually ended up just going into bed and going to sleep. Well, the ignoring came to an end. Oh, I don't mean it got better. I mean it got worse. One day, a girl, one day, one of the girls in the bunk, her name was Frady, saw Rivka walking. No, I'll say it differently. Instead of ignoring Rivka, some of the kids began to make fun of her. They would tease her. They would hide her things. Thanks for the zipper delay. They would tease her. They would hide her things. I got to keep going, man. I'm running out of time. They would tease her. They would tease her. They would tease her. No, no. Yeah, take them out. Take them out and put them in the desk. Be fine. Okay. They would tease her, and sometimes they would hide things from her. Who knew a plastic bag could be so cause such trouble? They would tease her, and they would hide her things, and do other things that were mean to their fellow campers. Now, sometimes when people do mean things to each other, it could be perceived as a joke. But being that nobody was ever friendly with Rivka, (laughs) being that nobody was ever friendly with Rivka, when they did this to her, it wasn't because they were joking. It was because they were being meaning. And the counselor noticed, but didn't really know what to do. And one day, Things got out of hand. You see, one of the leaders of the teasing that was occurring was named Frady. And Frady, well, she saw Rivka walking down the road towards the fields where there was going to be an activity. And Frady was sitting in a gazebo with a bunch of her friends and schmoozing and giggling like girls often do. And Frady saw Rivka walking up the hill. And Frady saw Rivka walking with her funny walk, with her clothes a little disheveled, with that funny look on her face. And Frady said to her friends, I have an idea. Frady came out of the gazebo, after Rivka passed. And Frady began 
to follow Rivka to the field. But she did not just follow Rivka to the field. She copied Rivka's gait. She started to walk with a similar limp. She didn't just copy Rivka's gait. She purposely twisted her dress and made it look disheveled. And she took out the bow in her hair and mushed it around to match Rivka's hair. And she placed upon her face, and Freydi placed upon her face that frown, that scowl, as she followed Rivka. But when Freydi, popular Freydi, did this, the girls who were with her, they began to do the same. And soon you had a whole string of girls walking towards the field, limping with disheveled clothes, mushy hair, and scowls. To an observer, it would have been like comical, almost like a joke. But to people who knew what was going on, it was very, very, possibly hurtful. Now what Freddy did not know is that as she was walking up this, as Freddy did not, Freddy did not know, as she was walking up the hill, going towards the field, following Rivka, at the edge of the woods, the head counselor of camp, Mrs. Moskowitz, was sitting on her go-kart, on her golf cart, they call it, watching. And she saw the girls mocking Freddy and Mrs. Moskowitz. And she saw the girls mocking Rivka. And Mrs. Moskowitz was horrified. Oh, they, she said to herself, what can I do? I can't believe it in my camp this is going on. But, but if, I, if I go and tell the girls outright, and maybe even... Make them apologize. It might make things even worse. Yes. And as she sat there on her golf cart, she thought to herself, and she realized she might have a way to make things better. It was a few days later. It was a few days later, and the girls were enjoying their rest period. Now, in sleepaway camp, if you've never been there, there's a lot of activities. There's morning activities, there's learning programs, there's afternoon activities, there's lunch, there's breakfast, there's supper, there's night activities. But there's also a period of time called rest period, which is kind of like people could do what they want. People could chill out. Either they could chill out in their bunks. In some camps, they can go to play basketball. In other camps, they can go to the canteen. Well, Rivka's bunk was all hanging out. Sorry. Skip that. Well, during this rest period, as all the girls were enjoying themselves, some writing letters, some playing basketball, some eating nosh, some were even fishing at the pier by the lake, when all of a sudden, there was an announcement over the loudspeaker. 
Attention, 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 Alamelach. It is time for something very important. You must all race to the show for a very important meeting. Now, all the girls heard that announcement. Now, girls who had been in camp before heard that announcement, and they said, Color War! Ah, it's going to be a breakout for color war. They're all color war. Some people were singing, color war, color war, color war. And some people were singing, we hate color war, we hate color war. And those girls were told, shh, be quiet. Okay, fine. And they were chanting and they were running and they were thinking, what's going to happen? Who, who's going to pop out of a cup? Maybe somebody's going to pop out of a cake. But maybe somebody's going to, maybe, maybe there's going to be a fight between the counselors. Uh, who knows? Because that's all these kind of color war kind of start-offs. And they all raced to the shore. And as they came up to the building, they screeched to a halt because Mrs. Moskowitz was standing there, slowing them down. And they noticed something strange. Rabbi Moskowitz, Mrs. Moskowitz's husband, Rabbi Moskowitz, the posake of camp, was also there. Hmm, interesting. And Rabbi Mrs. Moskowitz encouraged the girls to go inside and find their regular seats. And they all sat down. And after they sat down, Mrs. Moskowitz came to the front of the shul and she said, <clears throat> girls, and just as she said the word girls, half the room went, color war, color war, color war. And Mrs. Moskowitz waved her hand and moved her fingers, one, two, three, because that was a code for everyone to be quiet. And everyone quieted down. And Mrs. Moskowitz said, we have today a very special speaker that Rabbi Moskowitz arranged to come talk to us. He will be coming in a few minutes. But we called you here because we wanted to tell you on how to prepare to greet our guest speaker. You see, our guest speaker is not just a simple person. He's not a person who you walk in, he walks in the room, he walks in the room and you stand for him. It's not that kind of thing. It's a guest speaker that we're going to go out of the show and we're going to stand and greet him as he comes. Now he's not a Godel Adar. He's not as Choshev as a Rosh Yeshiva. But he is very special. Because he has a title to his name. And his title is Prince. His name is Prince Eduardo. And he is a true prince. And he is coming to speak to you girls. Please. Let us all go outside quietly and wait. And all the girls got outside and they lined up in rows and they saw coming down the hill was a long white limousine. In the front, on the right side, there was a little flag waving in the wind and the girls whispered to themselves, what flag is that? Where did that flag come from? What country is that? I don't know. Portugal, Argentina, Africa, uh, uh, United States, United States, that's not United States. Oh, I'm sorry, Israel. No, Israel, that's not Israel. And on the other side, there was another flag waving. And the car came down. And the car stopped right by the entranceway to the shul. The driver jumped out of the car, raced around to the passenger's back door, and he opened it up. And out from the back door came out a man dressed in an immaculate suit. If he's a prince, why isn't he wearing a crown? I don't think they wear crowns right now. Maybe. They do. I don't know. And he smiled. And he shook Rabbi Moskowitz's hand. 
and he waved at Mrs. Moskowitz. He knew he wasn't allowed to shake her hand. And the prince took Rabbi Moskowitz's lead, and the prince and Rabbi Moskowitz walked into the shul, to the front, where the seats for the leaders of the camp were. Mrs. Moskowitz ushered the girls back into the shul and told them to sit down. Rabbi Moskowitz now stood at the podium and Rabbi Moskowitz said, Girls, I would like to tell you that I am so honored that the prince was able to come and speak to you. We have been friends for many years and it just so happened to be that I was talking to somebody else, a common friend, and he told me that the prince was in America and he was actually nearby our camp and I called him and he agreed to come and speak to you. Wow, what a privilege. And now, without further ado, I call upon Prince Eduardo to come speak to you. And the prince stood up and walked to the podium. Everyone in the room stood up also, the girls showing respect, and then sat down. And the prince looked around the room with a big smile on his face. And he said, it is such a privilege to be here. The girls were amazed. His English was perfect. Only the slightest, teeniest bit of accent. I have known Rabbi Moskowitz for many years. And I really appreciate all that he stands for. I am a prince in a far-off land. Some people perhaps know about my father, the king, the king of Portugal. I am his son. And I am greatly honored that Rabbi Moskowitz called me here to share with you a little bit, something that you could take that you could take with you for your whole lives, a lesson. And I was thinking, what should I talk about? What idea should I maybe speak about? And I realized I had the perfect story, the perfect story to share with you. You know, it was a few years back, my father, His Majesty, decided he wanted to build a museum. The museum was going to host the artwork of the 21st century artists in Portugal. It was going to host the artwork of the 21st century artists in Portugal. And there would be a hundred paintings and sculptures placed in the museum and put on display with special lights, with special plaques. And you can imagine, every artist would want to be able to be in that museum because that would mean their artwork would last forever. And they would become very wealthy. And my father was very excited about the project. Because you know my father's an artist too. And my father. After the building was built. He decided that the way we were going to determine. Whose artwork got into the museum. Was there was going to be a contest. Every artist was allowed to submit. Up to three pieces of art. Paintings, drawings, sculptures. Every piece of art had to be ready within a certain time frame, approximately six months. And the only requirement about the art 
was the name of the artist cannot be on the artwork. It has to be attached to the artwork with a little card. And the artists all around the country began their projects. As a matter of fact, every art store was full of customers. Paints were flying off the shelves, paint brushes, pencils, pens, paper, canvases. The shelves were almost bare by the time two months went by. As the time came closer and the artists brought their work, they were put in a storage location until the day until the day of the great event. On the day of the great event, very early in the morning, approximately midnight, hundreds of workers went to the thousand pieces of art. And they took the thousand pieces of art and they brought them to a big stadium. And on the stage in the big stadium, they placed the artwork, each piece of art on a pedestal, on a special show platform. If it was a sculpture, they just placed it on the floor. Each piece of art had a number. Each piece of art had a little card in an envelope with the name of the artist. The entire field of the stadium was full of artwork, except for one spot. One spot, there was a stage upon which sat the king, the queen, me, and a few other noblemen. There were 23 judges who were going to be walking and marking, making comments about the art. They were going to go through the artwork and judge each piece of art based on its own merits, on certain criteria that they had, and decide whether it's eligible to go into the museum. There was an audience watching this, comprised of many of the artists. As a matter of fact, you know how many people were in the audience? 60,000 people were there watching. And therefore there was a camera crew with a special video camera that showed each piece of work up close so that everyone around the stadium could see it on the screens that were placed around the stadium so everyone would get to see each piece of art. And they began the long process of going through the paintings. They went from beautiful water paintings with flowers, sunrises, sunsets, all the way to natural paintings of animals, dogs, cats, elephants, even a lion. They went from paintings of the scenery that we described to paintings of houses, of villages, to drawings of people, to sculptures of heroes. And one by one, they went through. When they came to a painting that they felt was so exquisite that it got 10 points in every category by all the judges, and it for sure was going into the museum, they would take the card, pull the card off, flip it around, read the name. And when they read the name, if the artist was in the audience, one of the 60,000 people, he would jump up and he would take his hands and clasp them together and go, hooray, hooray! And everyone would clap for him. 59,900. 
and 99 people would clap and cheer for him. And that happened multiple times. And then they got to this painting. They looked at the painting and their mouths dropped open. This painting was magnificent. It was a painting of the king. The proportion, the dimensions, the imagery was perfect. There was a crown on top of the king's head that looked like it was popping out. Embedded in the crown was an actual diamond. Around the crown, around the king's neck, where the king were where the king wore a fur collar. The painting looked like real fur. The artist, able to use the painting to dry in wisps so that when you ran your hand over it, you would feel furriness. It was so real. The people were amazed. The judges were amazed. And they said, this painting is going into the museum. And they took the card. They opened the envelope. They took the envelope, they opened it, took out the card, and they saw the name. The camera zoomed in on the name as the judges read it out loud. His Royal Highness, the King. The painting was done by my father. The crowd, 60,000 people, went crazy and wild. What a, what a master painting! And they continued. And they looked at other paintings. Some paintings were really poor. One was an artist. They looked at the card because it was so poor. It was a picture of a violin. And it was painted by an eight-year-old. And everyone got a little kick out of that and smiled. And then, after a bunch more paintings, there were maybe 200 left. They came to another painting. And this was a scene of a lake with waves slowly going on the lake. The sun was setting, but it was still pretty intense. When you looked at the water, you felt as if the water was moving. As you stood there in the presence of that sun, you started to feel hot and sweaty. And on the lake in the distance, there was a sailboat. The sails were full of wind. And if you looked back at it a couple of times, you would swear that the boat actually had moved. Incredible. Took the envelope, opened it up, took out the card. His Royal Highness, the King. This is going in the museum, all right. This is going in the museum, all right. Wow. Painting, painting, painting. There were three paintings left. There was one spot left in the museum. Three paintings, one spot. And they came to this third to last painting. And they looked at this painting. And they started to laugh. Not just them. The 60,000 people started to laugh. Because this painting was almost like the violin painting. 
This painting looked like someone put paint up his nose and sneezed on the canvas. And then by mistake forgot to wipe their nose and instead wiped the canvas. There were streaks of red and green and blue. Helter, skelter, there and here. It seemed like there was no rhyme or reason. There was no way to understand why it was created the way it was. And the judges said, this painting is not going to make it into the museum. But, like the other painting, we would like to see which artist needs to go back to art school. And they took the envelope. They opened it. And they took out the card. The camera zoomed in. The judge's eyes bulged out as the judge read the Royal Highness, the King. The audience was silent. Nobody could understand. The King who painted those two magnificent pieces of art, now he painted this piece of garbage. Just then, the king, my father, stood up and he walked over to the painting, off the stage, over to the painting, and he took the microphone from the judge and he said, I know you're looking at this painting and thinking that it is a big mushkebabble. It's a word I learned from Sammy. But it is not. And the king began to explain how each color represents a different group of people in his kingdom. And each way it's presented represents the interaction between the groups of people in his kingdom. And the king said, when you saw this painting, you thought in your mind it was mushkebabble drawn and colored by a child. It was colored by me. It was a painting that I made. Just like those magnificent paintings, it was also my painting. And the prince continued and said, This story taught me such an important lesson. It taught me such an important lesson because, you know, sometimes we look at some people and think that they're different than us and, and they're maybe less than us. As a prince, I look down at poor people and I might say to myself, they're not worth it. They're not important. But then I must remember that the painter who painted me, the crafter who crafted me, God who crafted me, also crafted every human being. Every human being is an image of God. One can't reject an image of God simply because it doesn't look the same as another image of God. And I thought that's a great message to impart upon you. And the prince said, I have to go. Please, stay here. Rabbi Moskowitz would like to share a few more words with you. I'm going to be going out with my guard. And his guard, who was standing by the door, waited for him to walk by. He turned and he waved. Everybody waved back. And everyone shouted, thank you, thank you, as they should have. And he went back to the car. And the car drove off. And Rabbi Moskowitz stood at the podium for a few minutes, not saying anything. And then he said, Wow, what an amazing lesson taught to us by the prince. He didn't know the words Tzalem Elohim. He didn't know the words Tzalem Elohim, image of Hashem. 
Tzelem Elohim could mean that Hashem crafted, Hashem made every person Hashem crafts, every person Hashem makes. We can't mistreat anybody because they don't look like us. Because we're all painted by the same painter, His Majesty the King. And he dismissed the group. Freddy went back to the bunk with all of her friends. And when they got back to the bunk, Freddy sat there quietly. The girls sat there quietly. Rivka was not in the bunk. Freddy said to the girls who were with her, you know, I think the prince's story really gave me a new perspective on how to look at people. Even if some of us might look different and be a little different than each other, we're all created by Hashem and we have to treat each I I realized that, you know, I haven't been so nice to Rivka and and a lot of us girls have been following that not being so nice to and Rivka walked in just at that moment and Freddy turned to her and said, I'm so sorry. I feel so bad of what I've done to you and treated you. Please forgive me. And Rivka shrugged and said, okay, well, let me tell you something. From then on, for the rest of the weeks of camp, it wasn't the girls going and Rivka following. It was the girls going with Rivka in the lead. Freddy would walk arm in arm or arm over her shoulder as they went to each field. Rivka became first picked for her team. Rivka became the first person who was able to choose her part in the big play that their bunk put on. And the girls were so nice to Rivka. As Mrs. Moskowitz watched from the distance, pride in her heart, a smile on her face of how these girls took a lesson and changed their behavior. She was so happy that she told her husband, Rabbi Moskowitz. Rabbi Moskowitz was so amazed that he called the prince and he told the prince about the impact of his story. And I want to tell you something. The prince continues to go around telling this exact same story many times of his father's museum. But now he has an ending to his story. And he ends by saying that I once told this story to a bunch of girls in Camp Ahavo. And they changed how they treated others instantly. What an amazing group of girls that was. And therefore, those girls today have such reward for the Kiddush Hashem and for inspiring others to treat people nicely.